From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Marnie Munoz. You're listening to the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, we hear about SU's Jewish student community, which some say has been an integral part of their experience here on campus. How one local organization is supporting low-income residents in Syracuse. And an SU student's chocolatey method of fundraising. It's Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. In the fall, Damon Williams, who's an expert in diversity affairs, led a campus climate survey to evaluate the climate here on Syracuse University's campus, especially as it's related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And Williams' survey found that many SU students are fairly unsatisfied with the campus climate here and think that SU could be doing more in terms of its diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. And one of the biggest takeaways for Jewish students specifically was that they don't necessarily feel unsafe, but they feel targeted on campus. And so we spoke with a few Jewish students who kind of affirmed that they feel some microaggressions on campus, but have found communities to support them through the several Jewish student centers, including Hillel, Chabad, and Qus Jews. My name is Mira Berenbaum, and I'm an assistant news editor at The Daily Orange. And tell me about the Jewish community here at SU. What's it like? I'd say SU has a pretty vibrant Jewish community. Personally, I am a Jewish student, and I am involved in the Jewish student centers here on campus. And SU has a pretty large Jewish population compared to other colleges and universities, specifically in this area. But Within the Jewish community, there there are differing levels of observance, and I'd say SU has a relatively less observant Jewish community. Though many show up for like Shabbat and holidays, they don't necessarily like observe them the same way some students do at other schools. And so, I know you spoke with Jewish students about their experience with anti-Semitism on campus. Could you introduce me to them and what they had to say about it? Yeah, definitely. So we spoke with four Jewish students. So Daphne Budin, she's a sophomore, and she spoke about like the kosher food problem on campus. I came to college with some allergies, and when I would go to the dining hall, there was not that many options in the selected sections, like the vegan section or just the gluten-free section. Um, And so I kind of had to eat unkosher meat which is not something that I have been used to because I've been keeping kosher my whole life. Um, And keeping kosher is a religious observance thing. And it's basically where you can't eat meat or milk together. And then there's certain meat that's like hexured in a different way or killed in a different way. Um, And so I think that that was really hard freshman year because it was definitely something that I was not used to. Um, And while yes, there is a kosher dining hall, there is only just one. And not knowing many people in that dining hall or not knowing really where it was at the beginning kind of just became a routine that I started to eat not kosher meat. And I think that that really affected my experience here. And even though like there is a kosher dining hall, it's like not very close to where I live right now. And so it's kind of hard to having to keep go there while like other dining halls maybe could have kosher food to provide for everybody. Really, the lack of kosher food on campus is an issue for students. I also personally keep kosher 
And I've kind of just like become a vegetarian at school because I can't eat any of the meat in any dining hall other than Shaw. So I think having more like kosher food options could really benefit the university. Then we also spoke to Sam Aronson. She's a junior. And she kind of spoke to the issues of the lack of education and the lack of understanding of Jewish culture among both Jewish and non-Jewish students. She said she feels like the target of microaggressions quite frequently, especially when people don't understand like the Jewish heritage and the Jewish culture. And she's been working with the university to implement an anti-Semitism training and hopes to include it as part of the first year seminar course replacing Sem 100 in the fall. So that was that was also very interesting to learn about. And then Sarah, who's one of the fellow writers, she spoke to two other Jewish students. She spoke to Sydney Schroeder, who kind of spoke to how when we saw anti-Semitism on campus last academic year with the swastika in front of the 505 on Walnut, she said that like the Jewish communities were really there to support her. Yeah, and I want to talk actually about that event because I was thinking about it and you know, 2019 felt like a particularly dark moment. And I say that now, even in a pandemic, it was pretty dark for SU when in November and early December during that year, it seemed like the list of acts of hate committed on campus just would not stop growing. But then, of course, those incidents were in no way new to SU's campus or culture or history. It was just that some of them were being reported. I mean, do you think that it changed the way that people identified with their Jewish identity, I guess, during that time? Yeah, I mean, I think the students talked about how they see microaggressions on campus every day, but it's not every day where you see a swastika carved into the snow. And I think that's just like a physical reminder of all the little incidents that happen on an everyday basis, especially for Jewish students. And so I think that physical presence of a hate symbol was like really jarring for many Jewish students, especially those who had not had encounters with anti-Semitism prior to coming to college. And so I think it really did bring the Jewish community together in a way because Hillel hosted like listening sessions after that incident and hosted meetings for Jewish students to come together. And then they ultimately compiled a list of six concerns similar to the demands that other groups formed during that time. And so I think it, it presented an opportunity for Jewish students to work together but I think it doesn't like erase the little incidents that occur on a day to day basis. It was just like a bigger reminder that those are there. And you kind of touched on this already, but for the students that you spoke with, what does community mean to them? What does it mean to be a part of a group like that? Yeah, I think the students spoke about how like the sense of community here at Syracuse within the Jewish community is strong and they know they can support one another both in dark times and in good times. So they come together for Shabbat and holidays and to celebrate, but then also when there's a big hate incident, they come together to support one another. And so it's kind of this like twofold community. I want to go back for a second to the campus climate survey results. I mean, they've reflected some pretty pessimistic outlooks from the campus community who responded. For example, 43% of students said they were unsatisfied with SU's climate. Many students, staff, and faculty said they see SU as untrustworthy. And then, of course, the school's student population is also majority white, with 57%. So, I mean, with numbers like these in mind, how was the tone when you asked Jewish students about the future at SU, how they see it? 
I think, honestly, they were all pretty optimistic. The Jewish community has a pretty good relationship with administration, which is something that other minority communities on campus don't necessarily have. And so I feel like they feel supported by the institutions because of these like ties that they have to the administration. Chancellor Severud hosts Jewish students at his house for Shabbat dinner every year, not this year because of COVID, but that's a tradition that several Jewish students look forward to. And as soon as there was the swastika on campus, the administration was already in communications with Hillel and some of the other Jewish student groups. So I think they feel supported by the administration, whereas other groups don't necessarily feel that same support, which led to those survey numbers that say that 43% of students are unsatisfied with the campus climate. And the Jewish students said this, you know, they said that they're not necessarily unhappy with like the campus climate, but they're unhappy with the day-to-day microaggressions that they experience among their peers. So, I mean, the people that you spoke with then, do they feel safe on campus? Yeah, they they all said they feel safe, but they all said that there could be work done to make it a safer place and a better place for Jewish students. Mira Berenbaum is an assistant news editor for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to her story at dailyorange.com. It's called Jewish Students Find Community Amid Anti-Semitism. Mira, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Marnie. Eastern Farm Workers Association is an organization that tries to unite workers in the area to help them with financial and other issues. And so what's their mission exactly? Their mission is to unite the workers and take control of their own lives because a lot of people are not in control at the moment of like their bills increasing or if they've lost a job and they feel a lot of the governmental policies are not helping low-income workers. So their mission is really to try to take control of their lives and things like that. My name is Kaylee Narusas and I'm an assistant digital editor of news for the Daily Orange. And so can you tell me about some of the people at the center of this organization? What do they do? Why do they do it and what motivates them to? I spoke with Tamara Dursley, who's the benefit coordinator, and she started off as a member of the association. And then I also spoke with Stacy Batista, the operations manager. Tamara told me this really great story about this past Christmas Eve. I remember Christmas Eve calling her and saying, you know, I, you know, I was always around a lot during Christmas, and it got to a point where I was like, oh my gosh, it's Christmas Eve, I don't have enough food. I have all these people coming over for dinner, and my children. I calling her up and saying, Stacy, I need help, and I need help now. Like, I only have one small ham, I have like no vegetables, so nothing. I'm desperate, help me. And she literally came over Christmas morning, it was Right. Even before 9 a.m. with a whole box and bag of food saying, here you go. And one of the things that Tamara said really stuck with me. She said, nobody else would drop everything and run for you like the people at the association would and do. That's a really powerful story. And it's great that she was able to find the help that she needed at that point. So is that the sort of service that Eastern Farm Workers Association typically offers? Like, 
bringing food to people who need it? Yeah, so some of the things that they offer is food for people who need it. They try to reduce the bill for like National Grid and things like that. I know that one of the members that I spoke with, Cheryl Darby, she said that the association helps with back to school for children and kids. They, you know, try to get backpacks and sneakers and clothes and other materials that kids need to go to school, but it's expensive and it's a lot of stuff. Another thing that they do is they put together Easter baskets for kids this past Easter for parents that might not have been able to afford to get their kids Easter baskets. They did the same thing for Christmas. They put together like a a gift drive and they collected Christmas gifts or just gifts for kids for the holidays. So just stuff like that to help families try to just live, I guess. From what you're telling me, the Eastern Farm Workers Association seems like it's very active in the community. It seems like it's really helping people out. And that seems especially useful to areas like central New York, where agricultural workers and other people who have low incomes, you know, might be struggling. You know, in 2020, I think nearly 15% of Onondaga County residents and more than 30% of Syracuse residents had participated in SNAP benefits, which is a federal aid program for people experiencing food insecurity. And so basically, the criteria for that is if you don't have reliable access to healthy and affordable food, then you've experienced food insecurity. But of course, we know that like in Syracuse and in Onondaga County, there's issues with transportation and healthy food and store accessibility for people living in the city. So would you say that Eastern Farm Workers Association might see itself then as an organization dedicated to being part of the solution? Yes, I would definitely say that. They have gone and fought like different government policies and argued things like that. I know one of the issues was like the national grid. So they are definitely uh, the solution for this. And so what's standing in their way then? Are there any obstacles that have like been challenging for the organization to have to deal with in their work that they do? I think there's two major things that from my understanding of talking with them, that are really obstacles. First, they don't have enough volunteers. They are desperately looking for volunteers, especially student volunteers. Hannah Martin, an SU senior I spoke with, she had volunteered with the association her freshman year. And she also commented that a lot of the work that she did was trying to bring in other volunteers, cold calling, canvassing, especially on Marshall Street, things like that. And so that was definitely one of the issues because they are doing everything that they can to help, but they don't necessarily have enough people to make the biggest impact possible. And another issue that they brought to my attention was they do not believe that the people in politics representing the community necessarily have their best interests at heart. They think a lot of the the policies are detrimental to low-income families and people without these resources. What sorts of policies? Policies like those that are controlling the national grid. And I think that there's a policy that because in Syracuse it is so cold in the winter, everybody has heat. That is changing very quickly as we go into spring and soon we're going to be in summer. So things like that, those were the two biggest things that they mentioned in regard to policies. And so to these organizers then, what's important about the work that they're doing? 
to them, it's just helping people try to live their life and be in control of their life in situations that make that difficult. I mean, when you aren't making enough money to provide for your family in the way that you want to or put enough food on the table, it is a very out of control situation. So I think just trying to stay in control and just help people as much as possible is probably the most important. Kaylee Narusis is an assistant digital editor for The Daily Orange. You can read her story on The Daily Orange website. Kaylee, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Josh Greenberg are two siblings from the Westchester area of New York. Evan is a sophomore at SU and his brother Josh is a senior in high school. Hi, my name is Gavi Azoff and I'm one of the assistant digital editors for the culture section of the Daily Orange. Can you tell me about how these brothers got their start selling hot cocoa? Yeah, so one day back in like 2006, 2007, Evan was in kindergarten and just had this idea of, I want to sell hot chocolate to keep people warm. So he went home and told his parents, and they're like, it's just a little kid doing his thing, whatever. The main thing was like, keep people warm and give them hot cocoa. But um, then, you know, once I started doing it, I realized like how much of a difference giving back your time can make and it really inspired me to keep on going. And he started making signs for it out of old shipping boxes in their basement or at home and they just thought it was like a cute little art project and didn't really think a lot of it but I guess Evan was telling people at school, his friends were telling other people. I believe one of his friend's moms approached his parents and were like, oh that's really great what Evan's doing, that's really sweet and his parents were like, oh okay I, I guess we're doing this. So they helped him get it ready. They made like a sign. There's a picture of he and Josh at their first hot cocoa stand. It's actually incredible how much it's grown. Um, I remember I saw a picture of Evan in elementary school with like the the homemade sign for the hot cocoa stand. You know, it looked like obviously like a little kid drew it. And it, it was really only like their close friends who would show up and support Um, And then as the years have gone by, it just keeps growing. They keep raising more and more money. And that first year, they raised $180 for the organization Oxfam. And then from there, it just started growing. A few years later, they moved on to selling out of a local ice cream shop to get kind of a bigger crowd. And then it just started growing. And in the past few years, it's been out of the Westchester Mall in White Plains, New York. And a bunch of his parents still help out and like a bunch of his friends help out with the operation. This year is their 15th year and it's a little different just because COVID and everything. Last year, the hot cocoa stand was in January. So it was pre all the precautions. So this year they're doing it through like an online raffle of sports memorabilia that they've had donated. Evan talks like different sports teams in the area, primarily New York, and gets different memorabilia like signed pictures and balls and jerseys and stuff like that. The raffle's going on all of April. And so how old are they now? Evan, I, I know Josh is 18. 
I believe Evan's 20. And so what's been keeping them going now then, 13 years after they first began? I mean, what's motivating them? Evan was telling me that originally the idea was he was five and he was like, I just want to keep people warm. But then once they started doing it consistently, he realized that it felt good and that there's an impact that he was having on people by raising money. Their second year, they started raising money for the Pediatric Cancer Foundation through one of his friend's mom's works there and they were able to connect them. Their third year, I believe, they donated to the local food pantry, but other than the first and third year, they've raised money for PCF since and have raised over $60,000 for them. So just like see for him, it's really been like seeing the impact that the stand has on other people and just realizing the broader the broader impact besides just keeping people warm. He's come to realize that over the years and he's really enjoys that and also like being able to at the stand interact with people. People come consistently every year or are strangers and like just getting to talk to people. You touched on this a little bit before, but I want to go into more detail here at this point in in your telling the story. So if you could explain to me again, with the pandemic going on, were they able to continue selling hot cocoa in the past year? And if so, I mean, what, what did that look like? Aside from this year, they sell for, it's one weekend every year. It's not like they sell throughout the year. So this year, when I last talked to Evan, he said they were going to try and work on a way to sell hot chocolate, but it had just been through, this year it's just through donations on their website and the raffle. The last time they truly sold hot cocoa was at the 2020 stand in January of 2020. It's not like a consistent thing where they're like selling throughout the year. It's one weekend a year and then they spend the rest of the year getting ready for the next year, kind of doing the promotional and business aspect, reaching out to donors and getting all of that lined up. Got it. And so what's on the raffle this year? There's a signed Eli Manning photo, a Jacob deGrom jersey. But if you go onto their website under the raffle, there's a whole list of different things. There's a a Yankees Bobby Richardson signed photo. There's a Knicks Earl Monroe signed jersey. There's a bunch of different signed jersey and things. There's signed pucks donated by the Islanders. Everything is from either the Mets, Yankees, Giants, Jets, Knicks, Islanders, or Rangers. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a range, though. Um, And it seems like they're really trying to, you know, still pull in those donations to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are, for sure. They've been doing, this year, it's a lot more of, like, promotional using social media and such to get the word out and get people to still support them, even though it's looking a little different this year. Would you say that they've been successful? I would definitely say that say so. And this year it's still it's still April, so it's still going on. So I don't know how much money they've raised this year, but as of last year's stand, aside from for the thirteen years they've been working with the Pediatric Cancer Foundation, they've raised sixty one thousand seven hundred fifty dollars for them. So like, I would say so. Last year, they raised over 12000 alone through the sand. 
they have no plans to stop, so I would definitely say successful. Gavi Azoff is an assistant digital editor for The Daily Orange. You can read this story at dailyorange.com. Gavi, thanks for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. A lot of times, like generally one or two families a year um, show up and they mention how they heard about us on the news and they were really touched by, you know, what me and my brother have been doing for the past now, like 14 years. And it's really meaningful to like, it's really impactful to see the difference that you can make in people's lives. Special thank you to Mira Berenbaum, Kaylee Nurusis, and Gavi Azoff. Thanks executive producer Adam Garrity and podcast editor Mariah Humiston. And to our producers Abby Fritz, Kylie Herlihy, and Catherine Ito. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday.